Theatre Royal Castlemaine's Loyal Royal membership drive is on. Sign up for exclusive benefits including cinema discounts, early bird specials and much more. Serving dinner five nights a week plus lunch on weekends. Visit theatreroyalcastlemaine.com.au or follow them on socials for all the latest updates. Theatre Royal Castlemaine, entertaining Main FM sponsor. Animus Distillery is the place to go for spirits made with soul. Visit our fabulous cocktail lounge and indulge in our award-winning small batch gin or choose from our extensive range of local wines, craft beers and ciders. Open seven days a week in Piper Street, Kyneton. Animus Distillery is a luscious sponsor of Main FM. Do you love coffee? Do you love tea? Cream Town is a new cafe and arts precinct on Jarjawa Run Country. Serving Padre coffee and food by situation dining, Cream Town acts as a do-it-together business hub with creative, social and environmental regeneration as its priority. Open from 7am to 3pm seven days a week, visit Cream Town at 325 Barker Street, Castlemaine or online, cream.town. Cream Town, main FM sponsor. Green Graphics is your local specialist in print and web design, offering graphic design services and printing of all shapes and sizes, and building just about anything on the web. The team at Green Graphics love to make websites that you can control yourself, from big e-commerce sites to single splash pages for micro-businesses and anything in between. Located in Castlemaine for over 20 years. Check out their website or call 5472-5300. Green Graphics, Main FM sponsor. Bracken Lawyers is a legal practice based in Castlemaine, offering in-depth knowledge of property and commercial law, including finance transactions and advice on guarantees, as well as corporate advisory and companies law. They provide fixed fees and upfront quotes. Ian Bracken has over 20 years' experience in the law, much of this serving the Castlemaine community. Visit brackenlawyers.com, trusted FM sponsor. The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and their authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and sponsored by Castlemaine's signature bookstore, Stone Man's Book Room. Broadcast on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network. All aboard. Welcome to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network and also sponsored by Stoneman's Book Room, I might add. Today, got a bit of a treat for you, all the way from the Margaret River Writers Festival. It's one of their online events and it is David Wish Wilson in conversation with crime writer Michael Robotham who is promoting his latest book, which is called When You Are Mine, which is out now. Here's a little bit about Michael. Michael Robotham is a two-times Gold Dagger winning and twice Edgar shortlisted author. He was born in Australia in November 1960 and grew up in a small country town that had more dogs than people and more flies than dogs. He escaped in 1979 and became a cadet journalist on an afternoon newspaper in Sydney. For the next 14 years, he wrote for newspapers and magazines in Australia, Britain and America. As a senior feature writer for the UK's Mail on Sunday, he was among the first people to view the letters and diaries of Tsar Nicholas II and his wife, Empress Alexandra, unearthed in the Moscow State Archives in 1991. He also gained access to Stalin's Hitler files, which had been missing for nearly 50 years until a cleaner stumbled upon a cardboard box that had been misplaced and misfiled. In 1993, he quit journalism to become a ghostwriter, collaborating with politicians, pop stars, psychologists, adventurers and showbiz personalities to write their autobiographies. Twelve of these non-fiction titles were bestsellers with combined sales of more than two million copies. 
His partially completed first novel, a psychological thriller called The Suspect, caused a bidding war at the London Book Fair in 2002. Soon afterwards, it was chosen by the world's largest consortium of book clubs as only the fifth international book of the month, making it the top recommendation to 28 million book club members in 15 countries. Michael's novels have since been translated into 25 languages and have won or been shortlisted for numerous awards, including the Crime Writers Association Gold Dagger, the Australian Book Industry Association ABIA General Fiction Award, the Ned Kelly Award, and the Crime Writers Association Steel Dagger, where he was shortlisted for The Night Fairy and Shatter, just to name a few. Michael lives in Sydney's Northern Beaches, where he thinks dark thoughts in his cabana of cruelty, a name bestowed by his three daughters who happily poke fun at the man who was fed, clothed, and catered to their very expensive whim. And a lot of people speak pretty highly about Michael as well. Here's a few quotes I've just taken from his website. Stephen King, who needs no introduction, said, Robotham is an absolute master. Lee Child said, I love this guy's books. Val McDermott said, heart-stopping, heart-breaking, and heart-wrenching. And David Balducci said, he's the real deal. And I'm very happy to be able to replay the interview he did as part of the Margaret River Writers Festival online series. And here he is in conversation with another crime writer and friend of the show, David Wish Wilson. Thank you, Michael, for joining us. Uh, I know you're in lockdown in Sydney. Um, how, are you, how are you holding up? Oh, look, I feel a bit embarrassed about this whole, um, you know, we, we um, this, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, you hear, you hear politicians say, we're all in this together. And I feel as though I should say, yes, we're all in this together. But, but in fact, you know, as my wife keeps reminding me, I've been self-isolating for 27 years. My life hasn't changed one iota. You know, in fact, I sell more books during lockdown than I, I sell outside of lockdown. You know, um, I've managed to pick up a couple of awards over the last couple of years, even though we've been sort of locked down and not able to tour. So I feel um, incredibly blessed. And, um, you know, my life really, you know, aside from not touring, like normally the plan was that I would be at Margaret River in person, you know, and I'd be touring Western Australia now. That's been the big chat. The only change, really, in my life is that I haven't been able to tour. Yeah, well, that's it's quite a significant change, but it's great we can uh, we can do this, albeit virtually. Um, let's leap straight into um, the reason we're here tonight, and that's to talk about your your latest, which is uh, fl- literally flying off the shelves, as Sean said. It was number one fiction title in Australia for a few weeks, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so why don't you why don't you launch into telling us um, about when you were mine? Yeah, I mean this was a different. I mean as you as you mentioned, I've done done four, I think probably four what you class as standalones. Although it's quite interesting since when you were mine has come out, people are already asking me will mm. I turn it into a series? Um, because you know it features a. Yeah, the main character, the narrator of the story, as with most of my books, is told in the first person. The narrator is Philomena McCarthy, a young, ambitious, idealistic police officer in the London Metropolitan Police, um, who has defied the odds to become a, a policewoman because she is from a family of notorious London gangsters. Her father and her uncles uh, are infamous, really. And she's had to really, she's had nothing to do with the family for almost 10 years uh, and had to fight very hard to be accepted and to be allowed to join the police force. But she has this family background that shadows her and uh, a family that really want to bring her back into the fold. Um, so I guess that's Philomena McCarthy. And then basically the, the, the hook for the, the story, um, I guess the, the, the first major event is that on a, on a routine call out uh, one day when she's working a shift. She goes to a domestic abuse call out. Uh, She rescues a young woman, Tempe Brown, who has been the victim of a domestic assault uh, and arrests the perpetrator. But unfortunately, that perpetrator turns out to be a decorated London detective, the pinup boy, the London Metropolitan Police, um, who uh, not only has he been beating up his mistress, but he has a wife and two children at home. And that 
and his actions are covered up and and Philomena has done all the right things in terms of arresting him, but her career really goes into free fall from that moment because this is a man who has got some serious connections within the police force and, um, and you know, her life really will not be the same after this. Yeah, that's right. Um, he's a, he's cert certainly a, a nasty character, Mr Goodall, Detective Goodall. Um, so... Even with your novels that have been part of a series, you know, I, I, I don't think you write the same novel again and again as some as some do. Um, I've heard it said that you your novels always start with a kind of a uh, what if moment. So, if that's the case in this case, what was the what if moment for when you were mine that made you go, okay, I want to write, I want to tell this story. Yeah, I think I mean obviously domestic violence and domestic abuse is a huge hot button issue, not just in Australia. Um, but around the world, I mean, I think one one woman a week is dying in Australia at the hands of an intimate partner. In the UK, um, it's uh, two. I think it's two women a week or three women a week. In America, it's three women a day. Um, so it's a huge issue. But I, I think that the, the what if moment for me came um, watching. It was just typically watching a, a documentary about 18 months ago, two years ago, and it was about domestic abuse, but the perpetrators were police officers and how um, the police are notoriously bad at investigating their own, that they will hush it up, will not investigate. And obviously it's a very high-pressured job being a police officer and some of those men will take that work home. You know, they'll take that pressure home and they'll take it out on people that don't deserve it. Um, and yet... I certainly thought to myself in the, in the case of hearing some of these victim stories that there is nowhere they could turn because the very people, if you're being abused by a police officer partner, the very people you turn on, turn to for help uh, weren't, wouldn't be there for you. They're not going to help you. And even if you were taken to a, a refuge, a woman's shelter, police know where those shelters are. They're normally in secret locations, but the police know where they are. And similarly, if you try to hide, the police have the, the wherewithal and the database and facilities to track your phone, to track your car, to find wherever you are. And so I thought, what a helpless situation to be in, to have a situation where your abuser was a police officer. And I guess that, that it was, the, that was the, the seed of the idea of creating a story about that dilemma. Yeah, that's a you know a terrific and horrific premise um, to, to to base the story on. Um, very effective, of course. Before we talk more about the the, the book, um, what I just ask you to talk a little bit more about um, the standalone as a as a uh, practice, I suppose. Um, one of the things I love most of all about writing is going to a new character. Um, there's a lot of comfort in going to an old character that you know and you're, you're familiar with the world, but it's so, it's for me at least good fun just creating someone as you know watching them develop, watching them come to life. Do you find writing a standalone um, anxiety-producing or liberating in, in in the same way that I do? I, well, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I think um, there are great benefits in standalones because, as you say, you get to look at the world through a fresh set of eyes. It's very exciting. To create a whole new character with a backstory, and to and to um, that's enormously challenging and exciting, um, and I think a standalone is a benefit for the reader. There are a lot of readers that are intimidated. If you've if you're a writer who's written a long series, like for example, if you've never read an Ian Rankin, and suddenly you you think, well, I, everyone says I should read a Rebus, or you've never read a Michael Connolly, you know, um, a Harry Bosch, you know. Um, Something well, a lot of people say, Well, yeah, but I, I'd want to go back to the beginning, I'd want to read from the beginning. And suddenly, you're looking, Well, that could be 20 books ago. And and it's like, mm. you know, we watch enough series on TV to think, oh, I don't want to get involved in another series, I've got too many I haven't got through yet. And so, a lot of people are intimidated to actually start a book when it's sort of it, it part of a long series. And by, by writing a standalone, you, from a marketing point of view, you're giving those people a chance to pick up a new book, new character, discover if they like that author's style and the way they write, and then they can decide, okay, I think it might be worth, it might be worth 
you know, going back and reading your series. So there are benefits in it. As you say, the benefits of a series are, you know, um, from a reader's point of view, it's like putting on your favourite pair of slippers and getting in your favourite armchair and you're back with an old friend and you know what you're going to get. The downside for the writer is that unless unless there's an element of that that character that you haven't explored yet, if there's something that you still have to understand, then it's exciting. Then it's a bit like you know, my Evie Cormack character who I've been writing in the, you know, in my last series of Cyrus Haven. She's a sort of troubled teenage girl who can tell when someone's lying. You know, there's so much I want to explore with her. I can mm. see further books and I'm excited about further books. But with Jora Lockman, my previous series, I thought, well, this... I've done everything I could do with that character. Do you understand? I There wasn't much more I could explore. And for me, because I don't want to write the same book twice, the moment I think there's nothing more to explore with that character, there's nothing more I need to, to then I feel as though I have to move on. Excellent, yeah. So, um, well, speaking of Evie Cormack, and, of course, um, Philomena is a terif- terrific uh, lead character, um, that's something that's you know, describes your most recent novels, um, strong female lead characters. Can you speak a little bit about the challenge um, or the anxieties about writing um, writing across gender, writing across a different age group? I mean, we're both middle-aged white guys. Um, can you talk yeah. a bit about that? You know, it is a challenge, you know, and I um, I was very aware of it. I mean, I've written books like The Secret She Keeps, which they made the TV series out of was told through the eyes of two women who were both pregnant. And it was a book that was about uh, pregnancy, infertility, childlessness. I mean, these are deeply, deeply female issues. And um, a little part of me was saying, okay, um, should I be writing this? Am I going to be, you know, and I, and I was sort of prepared for, 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 for someone to come forward and say, hey, you're a middle-aged white guy. It's time you you know, stick to middle-aged white guy stuff. Don't try to, you know, uh, don't try to write about these issues. And and my reaction was always, well, how are we ever going to achieve true, hope, do we hope to achieve true gender equality if you don't allow a woman to empathise enough with a man or a man to empathise enough with a woman to look at the world through the eyes of someone else, inhabit their skin and to understand what they go through? And, and if I get it wrong, and as you know, David, I mean, the majority of fiction readers are women, the majority of crime fiction readers are women. Mm. If I get it wrong, then they have every right to criticise me. If I have tried to write a female character which does not ring true, and she doesn't, then by all means. But don't, don't tell me I can't at least try because, I mean, to me that would be so defeatist. And as a fiction writer, you know, I... I mean, it's, it's like cultural appropriation. You know, I, I have quite strong issues on that. I don't believe that fiction writers should be told they can or can't write anything. We write fiction. If we do it badly, criticise us, but don't tell us we can't at least try. Oh
You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM, the community radio network, and brought to you by Stoneman's Bookroom. And there we heard One Day Like This by the band Elbow. And now we'll return to the Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival, their online series where we're hearing David Wish Wilson in conversation with crime writer Michael Robotham. So um, I was asked recently at a Writers Festival where I get the... Um, this is an opportunity for you to praise your family, by the way. <laughs> um, I was asked recently at a Writers Festival why, where I got the inspiration for some of the strong female characters in my fiction, although none of mine are leads, it must be said. Uh, yet um what about what about yourself i mean i always think of my grandmother raising nine children in the back blocks of tasmania pretty much raising them alone and you know, her nickname was champ a very strong character so i can i, I just said it was you know it's an easy answer but these people are all around me my wife is a very yeah. strong character what about yourself yeah, well, I suppose, I mean, with me, you know, as a, you know, you know, my background, I was a journalist for many years and then I was a ghostwriter and I ghostwrote 15 autobiographies. You know, I helped people write their, their um, life stories and in their voice. And, and, and um, three or four of those were, were, were women. I mean, I did the Margaret Humphreys, the child, the woman who uncovered the child migrant scandal that saw, you know, 150,000 children taken away from the UK and many of them went to Western Australia, mm. you know, you know um, but they went all around the, the, the Commonwealth uh, and suffered horrendous abuse. So I did Margaret Humphrey's stories, which they turned into the film Oranges and Sunshine. Um, Jerry Halliwell, uh, Lulu, the 60s pop star. I mean, I did, I did a lot of women. And, and if I did my job properly, no one would see my fingerprints on those books. Mm. But each of those autobiographies was their book um and so i had some experience capturing female voices and then uh, you know i mean i on a, you know i can joke about the fact that i've got three daughters i've been married for 34 years there's really only myself and the dog in the house that are male and we've both been spayed so i mean <laughs> there's um and there's a lot of i must admit in all of the teenage characters i write whether it be with Joe O'Loughlin and when I used to write Charlie, his daughter, you know, um, used to write conversations between Joe and his teenage daughter. And when I write the Evie Cormac character, a lot of that dialogue comes direct from conversations with my, my daughters. I remember the first time I approached my teenage daughter and sort of asked her if she was having sex and she did this most amazing pleading the fifth on me. <laughs> and it was such a brilliant bit of lawyering that I walked away thinking, well, I've just been completely done then. <laughs> and I actually used that dialogue, you know, in a book much later with Charlie and, and, and Joe Lockman. Her argument was so perfect, you know, whereas I walked away thinking, I have no idea whether she is or she isn't, but I've got nothing to say anymore. <laughs> That's terrific. Yeah, I'm lucky enough to have a, a very strong daughter as well, uh, very strong and articulate and um, very good at wrapping my, he wrapping my head up with uh, little blankets so that I can't see or hear it. Uh, so anyway, back to Philomena, who is your, your, your central character, or Phil. Where do you see her as drawing her strength? As you mentioned, her father, Edward McCarthy, is a notorious, um, what we would call in Perth, a, a colourful character, um, a potentially allegedly originally a gangster now a, um, a property developer a property and developer <laughs> a property developer that's right and her mother who is also very strong um powerful in her own way where what what, what are the kind of the forces that have shaped her well i think i mean <clears throat> the book opens with which i think you know it's one of the nicest openings i think i've ever written <clears throat> where she at the age of 11 is on the tavistock square bus in london uh, at the may on the may 7 bombings the famous sort of london terrorist bombings where most of the bombs went off underground the one particular bomber was stopped from going underground and he, he detonated his bomb on on the tab on a bus in tavistock square and philomena at age 11 is on that bus and in the in the dreadful carnage in the aftermath she is approached you know out of the sort of dust you know, approached by a young policewoman 
who offers her a bottle of water and asks if she's okay. And and Philomena's attitude was she's like she was like a character in a film, and you know from the moment she appears on screen, she's going to be the hero. She's not going to be the one that dies. She's going to be the one that survives. And and from that moment, Philomena wants to be a policewoman. And you know it seems obvious given. You know, she obviously didn't realise growing up that she, her, you know, her family were gangsters, but um, but she sort of saw enough to realise, you know, that, that they were on that side of the law. And her uncles did go to prison for, you know, during her childhood. And, um, and you know, there were, you know, and I sort of based it too on a true story. A lot of, there were some, there were several individuals who became seriously rich during the London Olympics because they managed to either hoover up and land in the East End or control everything from concrete to scaffolding to security to whatever. They, they controlled it and they became multi-millionaires and they were, they were gangsters, you know. And, and so uh, I sort of morphed those sort of characters to create the sort of Edward McCarthy character. And so Philomena, you know... <clears throat> She's an only daughter. So Edward McCarthy is this man who's become seriously wealthy, seriously dodgy, and his only daughter won't speak to him and has become a police officer. So that's the sort of tension that I work with. Yeah, the other great uh, tension is the fact that um, she's she's a, a policewoman, of course, but um, it, it because of her family history, it puts her a little bit on the outside that she's not necessarily trusted it initially and um by her by her peers for that or her superiors some of them anyway that's a that's yeah. a great uh, a great and intriguing kind of setup yeah I mean, from, the, from the one hand she's got to try to keep it secret for most of them but it's that sort of yeah for that from the, that first moment she when she applies she, she spends years trying to get into the london metropolitan police because they keep she's had to go and threaten legal action because I mean, I, I did all my research. You you cannot be denied a place on the grounds, if, you know. You can if you've got criminal connections, but if you can prove that you have no criminal connections, you can join the police force. And she kept saying, well, I have not talked to my father in 10 years. You cannot, you know. Um, but it becomes a sort of problematic thing, obviously, because, you know, you know as a police officer his activities are going to come under suspicion. And you also, because she's about to get married and you know, she's his only daughter, that he is going to, you know, he's going to try very hard to bring her back and to so have some involvement in her wedding. And and so there's going to be that tension there. Yeah, so um, the book is divided into three parts and each three part is prefaced with a beautiful little quote, which if you, if you separated those quotes out from this book, you know, they're about love and... Um, intimacy and obsession, I guess. You separated them out. They, they could seem quite um, innocent and almost beautiful. But in the context of this book, um, where there is such a strong theme of obsession, uh, they become uh, very, very sinister as well, you know. So can you talk a little bit about the theme of obsession in this book and mm. how it's played out in terms of the character? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose the idea, I mean, the book really is about, it's about domestic abuse, it's about family secrets and family dynamics. And the other thing is about obsession and, and toxic friendships because Tempe Brown, the young, the young woman that Philomena rescues, that Phil rescues in, that, in, that first, in those first scenes, becomes a friend. And, 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 and sort of, I mean, she's in awe of Phil because Phil has taken down this much older, bigger detective. Phil hasn't just arrested him. But because she does martial arts, she's, she's taken this big man and she she put him on his ass, you know. And um, and Tempe was just thinking, my God, she'd never seen a, a woman stand up to a man and do that. She'd been so used to, I guess, being, you know, put upon. So she develops this obsession with with Philomena, and she wants to learn karate, and she she wants to arrange Phil's wedding for her, and. Um, and that idea of, um, you know, and I, most people have experienced it in their life, that idea of a toxic friend. And we've all had friends who we think are friends, but when they talk to you, you know, every they've got a compliment. They compliment you, but it's like a double-edged compliment. You know, it's like, oh, mm -hmm. I love your hair. 
But did <laughs> you all think about putting highlights in it or, you know, I mean, it's, it, they yeah. can't, you know, there's all, it's got to undermine you a little bit and, and gaslight you in some way. And, um, and I wanted to slowly put Tempe in this situation where she becomes obsessed with Phil, but doesn't just want Phil to be her best friend, but she wants to be Phil's only friend. You know, she wants Phil almost to herself. And and um, and I and, and at the moment, there's actually a scene. It's not giving too much of the book away, but there's a there's a scene in the book, which is based on a real life real life story a, a, that happened to a friend of mine, where um, they had this uh, were involved in this toxic sort of relationship, where this person um, and this happens to Phil that she discovers that her her pantry in the kitchen that you know, which is always a mess, that someone's gone in and rearranged it for her and put everything in the right order and placed, put all the, the peas together and the beans together and the and the rice. And put it, but not only that, put it all in order with all the labels facing out, but has written labels on everything. But not only have they written labels on everything, they have mimicked the handwriting to make it look like their handwriting. That's... I mean, it's... That's it's, a little creepy, you know. It's a little creepy. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was the sort of thing I'm thinking, you know, um, you know, and uh, you know, and sort of slightly also based upon even, you know, I mean, in you know, I, I've had it in my my, you know, my life of, of having, you know, having you know uh, someone I knew who was just a friend who would suddenly he just mentioned in passing, oh, I have to get, oh, I need new tires, or I need to get my tires rotated or i need to pick up my dry cleaning and next minute you come home it's all done they've done it for you and like you weren't asking them to do it you simply just you're making conversation now you might think oh my god i would love to have someone to do all that for me but after a time mm. you realize that there's something not quite healthy about someone that's doing all those things
You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM, the Community Radio Network, and sponsored by Stoneman's Bookroom. And now we return to the interview David Wish Wilson did as part of the Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival, as part of their online series. And he is in conversation with the crime writer, Michael Robotham. Yeah, it's a, so this is not so much a question, but more of a comment. It's a fascinating relationship. And yeah, Tempe's obviously a victim of um, domestic violence, but she's not, she's, she's not a victim. And her relationship with, um, with Phil is interesting as well, because Phil is not a fool. She's a cop, you know, she's, she's seen the very worst things that people can do. She's, um, so she doesn't, you know, necessarily immediately try and fix uh, Tempe. Or, or, um, so I thought I'd read out a little passage, which I thought really neatly sums up um, Phil's approach to it. I can't be friends with someone who willingly chooses to be a victim. At the same time, Tempe isn't looking for sympathy or complaining that life has failed her. She's like an animate riddle, a bundle of contradictions that has to be untangled and rewrapped onto a spool. But it's not my job to make her whole. So well, she's mature enough to realise that it's not her job to make her whole, but she's a she's a she's an enigma, Tempe. So yeah. that's and I think and I think you know it's, it's that the balance I strike in this is that there are times when you know, you think in a relationship like that, well, you've got to run the you've got to run the other way. But because Tempe has become so instrumental in organising Phil's wedding for her, it's almost like Phil keeps saying, "Okay, but after the wedding, I just have to get through to the wedding because she's done all the planning and she's arranged it all. I need her for the wedding." Because normally you think, "Well, okay, no, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna just distance myself from now. It's getting a bit creepy." But okay, in Phil's case, it's after the wedding. And that just keeps it tied to her. Yeah. So one of the other um, themes that runs through this book is this idea of moral ambiguity. You know, you, it's things aren't uh, black or white. Everything's shades of grey, as you'd expect in a, in a psychological in a psychological thriller. It's a lot about the messiness of real life, the complexity, the social complexity of London, the complexity of relationships, because this is also a love story, Um um, Phil and Henry, and the the inexorable movement towards towards marriage, uh, we hope. Um, mm. But can you speak to the what the what the uh, the trolley car dilemma? I think you called it. Yeah, um, it's how, quite a, how, it, how how does that relate to the? Yeah, it's quite a fun yeah, because you say because it you know, we can't give too much away because yeah. there is this side. But I, there are certain books that I absolutely adored. Um, uh, and there are a couple. One was, you know, and maybe people watching will remember, Mystic River was a, a, an interesting, the uh, Dennis Lehane book, you know, where, um, you know, where someone is ultimately killed because you think they're guilty of something and you discover they're not. And similarly, a book like um, Presumed Innocence by Scott Turow, you know, which was made into the film with Harrison Ford. Again, mm. it's got this ending where you... Everything you thought was true suddenly gets turned on its head. And, I mean, you think, is it the moral? I mean, people will finish this book and they go, was that a moral ending? Is that the right ending? How would I have ended it? You know, there's a sort of way it's doing it. But at the trolley dilemma is, I, I guess, what a lot of it comes down to. It's a very famous, it's not so much a experiment as this idea of, you know, and, or... I mean, in a nutshell, it is this, you know, it's a runaway train, a runaway trolley. It's hurtling down the tracks. It's about to kill five people. And you are standing next to a switch, which could divert that onto another track. And on that other track, there's a single person. So you have to make a choice whether you divert it and kill one person or you let it go forward and it kills five people, which is that's the trolley dilemma. But then you can throw into that idea, what if that one person was someone you knew? What if that one person that was going to die was a member of your family? What if, what if it was someone you loved? I mean, that, it is that sort of classic dilemma of, you know, would you kill one to save ten? Would you kill one to save a hundred? I mean, what, at what point do you make those sort of judgments? And I guess that, that's what I wanted to investigate in the story. Yeah, because I, I guess Phil is in that kind of situation, torn in lots of different ways, family, work, 
the, the work family, all of those kinds of things. So, but we, but without giving too much away, we won't go further onto that. But, yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a very topical novel. There's the dis there's discussions about the effect that Black Lives Matter has had on Philomena's, um, the way she feels she's perceived when she goes about her job because she's she's a very ethical, hardworking determined and courageous kind of person um there's the domestic and sexual violence that you discuss there's the the idea of coercive control um but this is um perhaps a selfish question because it's something i know a lot of myself and a lot of other writers have talked about um uh, you know on a technical level or practical level in this time of covid um the novel is set now um how have you chosen to go about it with this particular story? Because it's such a big thing, obviously. You can't yeah. just pretend it hasn't happened, but if you if you devote a lot of attention to it, it's going to smother everything else in the book. Yeah. No, it's funny. Well, I can tell you now, and it's not really my decision, but it came from my editors around the world, is there was a lot, there's a, I think there's a couple of, there are two or three COVID references in the story. Um, where references to, you know, during the lockdown or just throw away references to COVID. There were a lot more. And my publishers actually, my editors from the UK and America and Australia asked me to take them out. And they said, for, for, and, and, I, and I was initially sort of quite surprised because my previous novel was set in March of 2020. It actually, the opening just, chapter says March 2020, and there's no reference to COVID because I obviously wrote that book before there was ever a pandemic. Um, but the reason they asked me to change it is because I, they feel it dates the book incredibly. You know, if anyone picks up this book four or five years from now or 10 years from now, a, a big COVID reference would date it, and I write in the first person present. So I sort of understand how that would immediately jar. Mm. And, and oddly enough, the other reason they said is that people actually don't want to be reminded. The reason they're picking up, um, particularly yeah. crime fiction, which Absolutely. is time, is that they want to escape from what's happening. And, and, and that's sort of been reinforced by a couple of the comments I've got. Oh, I mean, these are just coming from Goodreads or elsewhere, where people have said, they said, oh, look, I was so I said, I'm a bit disappointed there was any COVID references, but they, they don't want to be reminded of COVID. Um, and so it's funny, when it, you probably remember this, when, when, when it first broke out, there was all this talk about there'd be so many COVID crime novels, mm. there'd be murders via Zoom, there would be, you know, there'd be these locked room Zoom type murder mysteries, and it hasn't really come to pass and and so i think from a you know you know touch of wood we're going to come out the from the other side of this that i think um you know i think i actually put it in the same the same category as you know for a long while after the vietnam war no one wanted to read a vietnam novel for a long while mm -hmm. after the gulf wars you know even though some remarkable books uh, were written you know um and remarkable films were made um they didn't do that well commercially because these were wars and conflicts that people wanted to forget and didn't want to be reminded of. And I think that COVID is something that people don't really want to be reminded of. Yeah, no, and uh, so it makes the uh, your publisher's decision quite an astute one. Although there are references to COVID in the book, there, but they're you know hmm. they they don't they don't they're not heavy or heavy-handed or anything like that. So. Um, just because you've you've just described that situation, and I agree, um, you know, when I'm reading, I'm, I'm COVID is the last thing I want to be thinking about. Um, before we open it up to questions from uh, that that people have sent in, uh, what are you reading at the moment? Um, are you reading to? Well, are you getting reading. any time to read for? Yeah, instance? no, no. I, well, no, I am getting, but no, it's funny. I'm. Um, I've just started, I think it might be called East of Eden. I, I've got one of my great literary heroes is James Lee Burke. Um, oh, me too, yeah. Yeah, and I've been asked to interview James Lee Burke for oh, his wow. only Australian event, yeah. a Zoom event, and Michael Connolly's interviewing him in America, and um, and I'm trying to remember, it might be Mark Bellingham's doing him in the UK. So in each country they've got, they've managed to get a, a, a you know, a, a fairly experienced sort of crime writer 
to interview him and um and they've asked me if i'll interview him and like i've read so many of his books but i've i've just picked up his new one because i obviously want to talk about the new one so i'm reading that at the moment all right fantastic uh which i look forward very much to reading because yeah he's also one of my favorite crime writers his descriptive um oh, he's just a poet. Are, yeah yeah, he is, just a poet. yeah. You are listening to the Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and across Australia on the Community Radio Network and sponsored by Stoneman's Book Room. And there we heard part of the Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival online series. And it was David Wish Wilson in conversation with the crime writer Michael Robotham. And Michael was discussing his latest novel, When You Are Mine, out now via Hachette. And that is all we have time for today. I've been Paul J. Laverty, your host, and I'm under all the socials under that name. And as a little aside and as a bit of a shameless plug, you can hear me talk uh, in conversation this week. That's August the 17th, Tuesday, August the 17th, at the Tap Room here in Castlemaine as part of Northern Books, Books at the Brewery series. And I'll be launching my own book, my novella called Cider Country. And I'll be in conversation with the wonderful Jenny Valentish. So that's from six o'clock. You have to book for that, but you can book at northernbooks.com. .au. And yes, uh, August 17, Tuesday from 6pm, where I'll be launching my latest book. Until next time, keep reading. <sighs> Had enough of working from home? Looking for a comfortable, friendly and professional workspace? Where you can focus and be your most productive self? Castlemaine Coworking offers flexible work options. From a day a week to full time. With reliable internet, a spacious kitchen, meeting spaces and a monitor on every desk. Book your free trial today at castlemainecoworking.com.au Main FM Sponsor Are you living with a disability and need support? Contact Castlemaine Support Services for qualified in-home or community-based assistance and respite care. Also available, environmental services, including house and yard cleanups and carpet cleaning. Visit castlemainsupport.com.au for more information. Castlemaine Support Services, Main FM sponsor. Down to Earth, 7pm Tuesday. On Community Radio 94.9 Main FM. Bad news and good news on the environment and social justice. We're all in this together. Hi, I'm Marie Edwards, your State Member of Parliament for Bendigo West. Castlemaine and District, including Campbell's Creek, Newstead, Malden, Tewton and Harcourt are important parts of my electorate. If you have any questions or anything you wish to discuss that concerns the State Government, I'm here to help. Please phone 5410 for an appointment. Spoken and authorised by M. Edwards, 16 Lockwood Road, Kangaroo Flat, funded from Parliamentary Budget. Marie Edwards, supporting Main FM. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. Moving can be stressful, but at Stressless Moves, we move your belongings like they're our own and can professionally pack and unpack your cartons. Stressless Moves offers door-to-door service locally or interstate. We do a weekly run to Melbourne with single items or a whole truckload. Leave the stress of moving to us. Call Jessica or Donna on 0427 046 001 for an obligation-free quote on your next move. Stresslessmoves.com.au, a proud sponsor of Main FM.
Not your 